Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 208 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the Hungarian Grand Prix. I'm Robin Warner, and yet again, I am not alone. This time, I am joined by not one, but two very special guests. Yes, that's the first one. That's Harrison. He's joining me. He's going to say hi on occasion and have some very intriguing viewpoints. But uh, certainly, uh, last but not least, Chris Roche is back with us again to give us the finest of English accents and points of view. Well, you're lucky I haven't developed an American accent since the last podcast, so you are correct in your statement. <laughs> Dreadfully close. Uh, thank goodness for the pip-pip you gave us last episode. I think that's what saved us. <laughs> so did you want to talk about Hungary, or can we skip to predictions for the remainder of the season? <laughs> I think that the Hungarian Grand Prix was fascinating in terms of seeing uh, the characters, the character traits of different drivers and how uh, they reacted to different scenarios because you had the intra-team drama going on between the two top teams with uh, Kimi and Vettel having to have a, we'll call, discussion and then um, Botas and Hamilton in the same place. So you tell me, where would you like to start? Well, I think it was another fine return to Formula One for a great British driver, Paul DeResta. <laughs> you weren't expecting that now, were you? <laughs> no, I, it was fascinating the way that, because he got the call to uh, step in to broadcast for Martin Brundle. And then while he was there, he got the call to step in for Felipe Massa. I mean, it was just what a bizarre turn of events for him. A very happy one. Yeah, and he didn't do a bad job, did he? Uh, qualified uh, last, I think it was. But he was certainly not running last when uh, when the Williams failed. And uh, he wasn't a million miles off Stroll's pace. So actually, not, not too bad because he hasn't been in Formula One for a number of seasons. And... Uh, Racing touring cars isn't probably the best preparation for a 17 F1 car. So it's pretty respectable. I'm not convinced he deserves a full-time drive on the back of that, but uh, he certainly didn't disgrace himself, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And, uh, I, you know, it's one of those things. It's so hard to see on television, but, you know, there's so much to learn and do and take in when you're – when you've been out of a car, you know, this isn't, this isn't changing teams, which is already a big step. This is changing series. I mean, he's a DTM driver full time and he jumped out of a DTM car into a formula one car, which he didn't have, um, he didn't have a lot of, uh, time then other than this, uh, other than the simulator. So he, he he had so much to learn so fast, such a steep learning curve. I have nothing but respect for him. Yeah, it was it was decent, and it's interesting that it came in the same in the same uh, period when the uh, potential of Robert Kubica returning to Formula One seems to be gathering momentum. Um, now that is a driver I would like to see back in Formula One. He was a very exciting driver uh, and a former race winner prior to his accident in rallying. And uh, it would be, um, I think it'd be great to see him back in a, in a Renault for next season, to be honest. Uh, 
Totally agree. And I think most everyone agrees with you, although that would be at the cost of another English driver. I, I, I don't think anyone thinks that Nico Hulkenberg's seat's in jeopardy. So it would be Julian Palmer that has to step aside. But, I, you know, it's funny because I was going to get to that at the end because the Robert Kubica news is huge news in Formula One, in my opinion. But he did test the car after the end of the Hungarian Grand Prix. So if you don't mind, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, talk about that just a few minutes from now. Sure. So should we jump into qualifying then? It was um, a bit of a Ferrari domination. Uh, Ferrari clearly was the fastest car around the Hungarian ring. Uh, Vettel uh, easily put it on pole position. The uh, Mercedes looked like after Q2, they might be up for the fight. Uh, Hamilton made a bit of a hash of um, his first Q3 run and um, and then had to put a bit of a banker in to, to secure fourth place on the grid, which was uh, always going to be a tough starting spot for him. Kimi put in a good late effort to secure an all-Ferrari front row. Um, and the Red Bulls sort of faded away, didn't they? They looked very promising in, in Friday free practice, but uh, but they did, didn't quite have the pace when it mattered, um, lining up fifth and sixth. But, um, but much, much closer, considering some of the gaps we've seen of the Red Bulls to the Ferraris and Mercedes early in the season. They're, they're really knocking on the door now and um, will probably pose quite a threat for race wins later in the season, I suspect, on similar tight, twisty tracks. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that goes back to what we were talking about uh, last podcast, which was, you know, at the British Grand Prix, uh, Mercedes was quite strong uh, in comparison to the Ferrari. And some were saying, well, uh, Mercedes has the legs on Ferrari now. That's that. But we're, we're starting to see distinct differences in character in the car that favors the Ferrari in the tighter, twisty bits, favors Mercedes in the longer, higher speed bits. So it seems like the Ferrari has more effective downforce. The Mercedes has a um, lower coefficient of drag and um, you know better efficiency of airflow. So um, it's going to be really fascinating to see which driver capitalizes on its strengths and minimizes its weaknesses better than the others because you know think about the british grand prix it was absolutely inversed in terms of results and performance yeah it was another it was a shocking turnaround really from silverstone uh, mercedes looked like they were in a real role and it made a lot of progress in setting up the car and then we come to a track which has been a happy hunting ground for hamilton in the past five five wins from 10 races prior to this this race and he um he struggled throughout the weekend. Um, the speculation is that the, the Mercedes has a slightly longer wheelbase than the Ferrari, and that hampers it in the in the tracks where you've got uh, slower, tighter corners, um, and it favours it in in the circuits where there are a longer sweeping uh, corners. So uh, clearly, Mercedes still have a problem. We've talked about it a couple of times. Uh, they still have a problem and it particularly affects Hamilton where he seems to overdrive and um, therefore doesn't quite achieve a good, uh, as good a pace as Botas over a lap. Um, and, um, and it hampered him throughout the race. But interestingly, you know, the roles seem to be a little bit reversed. I don't want to jump ahead, but, uh, you know, certainly qualifying Ferrari dominated, but in the race, Mercedes seemed to be much more competitive, particularly Hamilton. So, you know, this, it's a quite a complex situation. And I think on a track 
that is more conducive to overtaking, because Hungary is a particularly poor overtaking track, probably second only to Monaco. If um, if the track had had a better DRS zone with a longer straight, uh, Hamilton might have been, uh, you know, able to to climb up onto the podium, maybe even uh, as high as uh, second. I would I would suggest, given that Vettel had a mechanical issue during the race. Um, but obviously, you know, the team, as you mentioned earlier, the team dynamics, the way Ferrari goes racing is very unique compared to certainly a lot of the British-based teams. Um, and, you know, and, and I think ultimately a lot of people talked about Hamilton may, may rue the day he gave the position back to Botas, but that's just the way he's raced throughout his career. And I think, uh, you know, a long time after he retires, that'll, that'll hold him in good stead in terms of how people... Um, consider him in, in, in terms of the overall rank of F1 drivers. You know, he's always been very willing to um, let his racing do the talking. He's never asked for favoritism within his teams. He allows Botas to be an equal driver. He allowed uh, Rosberg to have equal number one status. He's, he's allowed his mechanics to be mixed up. And now he's amazingly given up uh, a podium position based on an agreement made prior to the race or, or during the race. And that's, I think, to be commended. And it's completely at odds with the Ferrari approach where, you know, no Vettel would never have done that in a month of Sundays. That's just not in his makeup. And, um, he, you know, he demonstrated that time and again in the Red Bull days uh, against Weber. Um, you know, maybe it'll, it'll get him another championship. Maybe it won't. But, um, but it's interesting to see those two distinct driving styles and, and uh, approaches. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you hit a lot of really important points there. The uh, Vettel's hero in racing is uh, Michael Schumacher, and we know all too well that Schumacher would never, ever, ever give up a position because every point is potentially critical. And that calculus is very much part of Vettel's upbringing in what makes a great race car driver and that's what i was getting at earlier i mean we saw such compelling uh, examples of character because sure maybe it was that vettel had a mechanical issue but raikkonen absolutely had the pace on vettel and that one point there were some serious threats from hamilton even despite the short drs range there, there could be threats of overtaking and Ferrari and specifically Vettel were unwilling to protect the race win over protecting as much as they can their number one driver, which uh, I felt uh, was an interesting, uh, interesting decision given that uh, you hear it up and down the paddock. It's the team, the team, the team. And the driver's championship, as far as the team concern, comes second. Um, and then, in the same race, in the same circumstances, you have what I thought was an unbelievable showing of character that Hamilton uh, Hamilton was let by by Botas, I don't know, 20 laps to go, and indeed ended up pulling a better than seven-second gap over his teammate, Botas, he was well in the lead. He was running much faster, but he did he did not ever overtake a position. He never got around uh, Raikkonen. And I think that's largely just as you stated, it was a result of the 
short DR rest range, the just very short braking zones in, in Hungary that makes it inherently difficult to pass. But here we were on the last lap seeing Hamilton let lapped car after lapped car go by him and going to reasonable pains to give Botas the position back by the start-finish line. And he was interviewed afterwards, and they were like, you know, that was that was risky. And, you know, what if those three points come in handy later? He's like, well, I hope that's not the case, but I'm a man of my word, and I said I would do it, and I, and I'm, I wasn't going to give that back. and I wasn't going to take that back. So to see him go through with that, and despite having the heated championship that's literally right in the middle, just over the hump of the midway point, and he is at a deficit at this moment, and he's still willing to do that, just shows just, I thought that was an unbelievable show of character, and just this very overt, vivid image of one team philosophy versus another. And it was so fascinating to see. So this race, some may say it was exciting, some may say it was boring, but to me it was just... To me, if if you were a philosophy major, this would be a race that you show your class as an example to discuss. There's deep thought in this. I mean, to add to your point, not only did Hamilton have to uh, allow Botas to catch up um, at the, in the last lap of the race, um, he took considerable risk in how he allowed Botas to overtake him. So he ran wide at the last corner. Obviously, they had to be a bit careful because uh, Verstappen was right on the tail of Botas. And um, he ran wide on, on the last corner to allow Botas to take the move and still uh, Hamilton could take the fourth place. Now, you know, you're right out there on the marbles and, you know, anything could happen. He could have uh, he could have lost control. Verstappen could have pipped him. He could have thrown it into the barriers and, and not finished at all. It was a massive risk he took to give the spot back. And... Um, uh, you know, they, they got away with it. They they managed to reverse positions. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Toto Wolff was saying that he was even debating whether it was the right call after the race uh, for some time. Uh, I think only time will tell. Hopefully, um, hopefully it'll pay off. Uh, Botas's attitude from that seems to have actually raised his uh, expectations of future battles with Hamilton, that he's now saying he's an equal number one and... Uh, and, uh, you know, it's wide open. He's only 19 points behind Hamilton in the championship, so maybe he still thinks there's a, there's a chance. So Hamilton really, you know, um, rather than taking the opportunity to impose his will on the team and, and really push, lay down his credentials to be the primary driver in the Mercedes team, has sort of almost showed a weakness. But, uh, but as I said earlier, you know, he's like an old-school racer. He's a very complex character, Hamilton. You know, you've got the one side of him that wants to be a pop star, wears the big diamond um, studs, hangs out with Rihanna and company um, and yet in the way he goes racing is very old fashioned You know, loves to race the right way, wants equal terms for everybody um, and um, you know he wants to he wants to, if he's going to pass somebody he wants to do it cleanly, he wants to do a, n- a nice move, he doesn't want to you know, ram into the side of you like certain other drivers on the grid um, yeah, he's he's got you know that sort of old-fashioned racing mentality. It's not all about winning. It's about winning in the right way. It's about showing that you are ultimately the quickest driver. 
and that you didn't win at any cost. And that is in sharp contrast to the, the style that Vettel uses, which, as you said, is very much in the mould of Schumacher, who, who sort of took Senna's initial uh, win-at-all-costs approach and then took it up another couple of notches. Um, so I think it's quite nice. He took he took win at all cost and added some uh, added some uh, science and uh, strategic uh, thought into that. It was win at all costs and set yourself up to win at all costs from the beginning. Absolutely, yeah. You know, set the whole team around you, set the teammate behind you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, definitely. And it was very effective. It won him seven world titles. So you you know, if that's your ultimate goal in Formula One is to, um, you know, just win races and championships, um, then that's certainly the approach that is, that's proven to be the most effective. Uh, Hamilton seems to be taking a slightly different path. And as I said earlier, I think it'll ultimately stand in, in, um, in a sort of slightly different, uh, light to some of the other drivers philosophies, more in the sort of Jim Clark, Fangio mold. Well, it's funny because it, uh, to me it kind of struck me as uh, Sterling Moss, sure. kind of yeah, a yeah. gentleman, old school, kind of uh, I'm going to do it my way type of attitude. Um, but I, I have to disagree with you. Uh, you called it potentially a weakness and I, I, I took it as a strength and I took it as a you know that I'm a man of my word, so uh, – if I need something, you have to give it to me. So I think in my mind, he built that wasn't so much showing a weakness as it was building a trust. And I think he's working as hard as he can to elongate the honeymoon period he has with Botas right now. Right now, they have a good relationship there in good stead and they, they work well together. Botas is a respectful teammate. Botas understands his place and I think that uh, Hamilton wants this to not turn sour. He wants to delay that because to a certain extent that is almost an inevitable conclusion if the other driver truly wants to be world champion himself, which of course Botas does. And uh, I think that if Botas starts to get a little bit hubris and think about co-equal number ones, that Hamilton's attitude will shift very quickly and he will do everything he can to show his dominance. But hopefully that won't be the case that, you know, this will just continue a respectful relationship. And, you know, what I wondered about too was, uh, you know, reactions from fans, you know, I think, and I think this does have an eventual indirect effect. If, Vettel's fan base shrinks a little and Hamilton's fan base grows a little uh, as a a result of these types of things, that support changes. Now, you know, Vettel, of course, is wearing Ferrari red, and that's hard to compete with when it terms terms in in terms of fanship. But, uh, you know, I I I think Hamilton did Hamilton did himself a, a big favor with, you know, the the fan base of Formula One with that move. And I want to shift gears a little bit because I also I also felt like Hungarian Grand Prix showed what uh, I know Harrison that's what I'm saying. I agree. I I'm I that there was just a very I'm going to call it because they both happen to be a very Finnish approach to these types of 
problems and a very, you know, uh, non-finish approach. It seemed to me that throughout the weekend with the, tr- uh, with the highs and lows that uh, Mercedes and Ferrari were going through, that both Raikkonen and Botas were much more level-headed throughout from Friday through Sunday than either Hamilton or Vettel. Yeah, I'm not sure about. I'm not sure about that. Um, Pause for thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll go with your theory there. I mean, I didn't really see. Um, I didn't re- considering how tight it was. I didn't really see too many fireworks from anyone. I mean, Hamilton seemed to be. He, he seems to have got no, into a no, position no. where he's now willing to work through the problems with the vehicle rather than get too upset about it. Um, and well, Vettel, but see, that's just it. Not, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it outward fireworks per se in terms of like emotion and yelling and screaming. I mean more like, you know, when Hamilton wasn't qualifying quite as well, it, it really affects his performance. And he he ended up being not only behind the Ferraris, but again behind Botas. And uh, Vettel as well, his stress came at the race. And he absolutely refused to be a team player. And, um, you know, Raikkonen was saying, hey, this is getting dicey. And, you know, and and Vettel would just not hold up. Whereas the Finns went about their business, did their job very well, despite the stress. Um, both Vettel and Hamilton, I thought, showed uh, showed that the stress was getting to them Hamilton more in qualifying, Vettel more during the race. I mean, I, yeah, I can't disagree with that. I think all four of them did rather better than the Dutch-Australian axis, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, we haven't we haven't even mentioned Red Bull, have we? I mean, it was a fascinating start. If we if we wind right back to the beginning of the race, let's do so. I mean, I thought that I thought the Red Bulls. Um, you know, really outmaneuvered Hamilton in turn one really effectively. He he sort of was a sitting duck. I didn't think he was that smart about, uh, you know, he got caught up behind Botas in no man's land and allowed a Red Bull to go either side of him, which put him in a, in a you know, on the back foot immediately. Um, and then, of course, we had Daniel and, and Max come together at uh, turn two. And, you know, Max basically outbraked himself, locked up and slid into the, to Ricardo. Um, and subsequently got penalised for it, which I agree with some of the other pundits on this one. I thought he was he was uh, that was a little harsh. I didn't think he deserved a ten second penalty. I mean, if you if you think about um, you know, his transgression versus say Verstappen's in Azerbaijan, I mean, there's there's just no comparison to my mind. One was an innocent racing incident, right? Okay, yes, you you ultimately caused the DNF of your teammate. Um, but you you weren't doing it maliciously, whereas Vettel's actions were quite deliberate, and yet they uh, got quite similar penalties, really. Although, of course, Vettel's was a stop go, but um, so a little bit more severe. But but even so, Max's penalty was harsh. I thought. Okay, that was an excellent point that Chris Roush just made, uh, right in the middle of us recording the episode. We actually ran into some pretty severe technical difficulties. And we could not continue. Uh, we lost audio contact with each other. Um, most of the time, Chris and I are in two different locations when we're recording. 
and uh, we rely on <laughs> the internet to keep us in touch. And we just, uh, we lost it. There was some weather that came through that was throwing everything off. And so uh, episode 208 was the victim of poor weather. <laughs> but um, that being said, we were able to get, you know, the first uh, chunk um, together that you saw. And I had uh, Mr. Roche send me an email um, to kind of highlight his thoughts uh, of the race, things we didn't get to discuss. And hopefully uh, Chris and I will be able to speak again in the near future. I don't know if it will be after Belgium or uh, exactly when, but um, I do apologize for the delay. We are going to uh, be back on track uh, hopefully very soon, but I hope you're enjoying the summer break thus far, uh, just calming down just a little bit from the tense, ridiculousness nature of this 2017 F1 season. And uh, I know that I am definitely, it's weird, it makes me feel old, but I'm actually enjoying the time off to think about other things for a moment. It's like, oh, there's some house things I need to get done and stuff like that. So anyway, um, back to the show at hand. Uh, you know, Chris was just talking about the uh, penalty that Max Verstappen received um, for the incident he caused uh, with Daniel Ricciardo. And I have to say that I agree, um, but uh, not by, I mean, it, it was a little bit on the harsh side, but it it was his fault in my opinion so you know and the fact that his teammates is uh tough but uh i i don't think he does i think he deserves something but maybe the 10 seconds was a little bit too much um so uh that was a good point that he made but the the next point that chris roche wanted to talk about was uh mclaren's performance and i think this is definitely something worthy of conversation um, Chris said, first of all, he said, good performance by McLaren, both cars qualified and finished in the top 10. And now McLaren is ahead of Sauber in the constructors, uh, constructors championship. So, and, uh, there were no engine failures. So yeah, there's definitely a positive move, um, for McLaren Honda. And I think a lot of people predicted that if this, if this, uh, if they were going to have a good Grand Prix other than Monaco, the Hungarian Grand Prix would be it because it does rely on engine performance a little bit less than uh, some of the other tracks. However, Honda has made a lot of uh, a, a lot of points to say, no, we were expecting improvement here. They're on uh, spec three of engines and they're expecting a spec four to be coming out very soon. I don't know if either it will be Belgium or not, but... Honda thinks that their horsepower deficit is decreasing and that they're still, you know, they're still working on some core issues with combustion, but they think that they're, they're getting closer. They don't think they'll be ahead of Mercedes anytime soon, but they're hoping to get ahead of Renault sometime in the near future, which is kind of remarkable to hear them say their claim is that, uh, you know, this is the third season that, uh, Honda's been back in the Formula One Championship and their third season struggling. And, you know, it's like, gosh, it's wearing thin. But they're, they're claiming, like, look, because we changed concepts 
after the second year that in a lot of ways they're kind of back to zero and they haven't had nearly as much time as it would appear on the surface. That's not entirely, <laughs> that's not entirely a fair argument, but I mean, I can see the validity of what they're saying that it's not as long of a progression as it seems because in many respects they did start over. Um, but uh, all that aside, it does look like they could potentially be making progress. And, you know, if they do have a new spec again in uh, in Spa in Belgium, that, and it, that will be a very showing result because uh, if indeed the McLaren chassis is in good shape, and obviously they have strong drivers in Alonso and Stoffel Van Dorn, if they perform well in Spa, I think it'll be hard to argue that they're not back to uh, a much more competitive set and that will help their fortunes quite a bit. The irony is that uh, it came out right as all this stuff was happening in Hungary that uh, Sauber has pulled out of their deal with Honda. Uh, Sauber is in fact going back to sign a deal with Ferrari and it's actually a good deal for Sauber. The current deal is they get old Ferrari engines. I think the new deal is they're going to get current spec Ferrari engines. So they're going to be a little bit more um, up to date in terms of engine performance, which will help them. The uh, official reason for this change of pulling out of the Honda deal and going back with Ferrari was that they lost, you know, there was a shakeup in management. They lost their team principal. New one came in and for sake of uh, as much, uh, smooth operations as possible with such change up to keep going with Ferrari. That's not a terrible argument to make. It's just, it's just plain that if the Honda engine were running a lot better, they wouldn't have changed the deal. So it is an excuse. It's not a bad one, but it is an excuse. And uh, that was another point that Roche wanted to point out. It was very, very uh, apt. Um, Next thing Chris mentioned was that uh, Williams may be, question mark, afflicted by the same performance issue as Mercedes. Uh, they have dire pace and now in a real scrap with STR and Haas for fifth place in the Constructors' Championship. And I think that's a really good point for Chris to make. You know, for, you know, right around 2014, it was, Williams was the best of the rest. You know, they were they were very strong. Uh you know, Mercedes was out well and ahead and, you know, Williams was one of the only teams that could really threaten Mercedes at any time. That was in 2014. And since then, it's kind of gone backwards and it's frustrating to see, especially for Claire. She deserves better, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, you know, Williams is currently in fifth. It'd be they lost fourth to Force India at the end of 2016. Doesn't seem like they're going to get it back this year. And if they start losing, if they lose to Haas, that'd be a really difficult pill for them to swallow because Haas is a smaller team, a brand new team, and uh, they're running Ferrari engines with Ferrari technical support. And Williams has Mercedes, which is still in many ways regarded as the most powerful engine there. So, it's it's a real tough go for Williams. I certainly hope for better. Uh, Williams, uh, unlike McLaren, 
I think could use some help in the uh, driver department. You know, uh, Alonzo, uh, Ma, excuse me, Maso wasn't in the car because of a uh, dizziness, which there's reports since the Hungarian Grand Prix that came out that he's feeling much better. He's been carding and he should be back in the car again and doing just fine at Spa. But, you know, Felipe was all set to retire last year. And Lance, he's shown some progress, but he's still not a good benchmark for the performance of the car. If there were a, if there were like an Alonzo or, you know, a Jensen Button wouldn't, again, I've said this multiple times, if Jensen Button were in the car, that would be a much better uh, yardstick to measure the car itself by. And I think that one of the reasons why Williams is struggling to retain fifth in the constructors and comfortably so is because they have a weaker than average driver lineup, especially considering the car. Um, the next thing to talk about um, from Chris was uh, Robert Kubica being in the car uh, for a test with Renault a few days after the Grand Prix. Uh, Roche, Chris Roche said, Kubica's story is astonishing, amazing. He is even able to drive an F1 car let alone be on the pace. Given Palmer performance, would be happy to see Robert given a chance this season. So what Chris is suggesting and what some reports have said is that we not be we may not be waiting until 2018. It might be that Kubica gets a race drive in the Renault before 2017 is over. And it's hard. I feel bad for... As a former driver myself, I feel bad for any driver that isn't given uh, as many opportunities as possible. But the Kubica, the Kubica story is so good. The fact that he was so highly regarded and then took himself out of contention with the rally with the rally accident he had in 2011, and now it seems so long ago that he must be older, but he's he's only 32, and. It sounds like he's healed enough and the circumstances are such a way that he could, in fact, get in the car again. He could be competitive. And really, he's still shaking rust off, and he was quicker than a lot of folks during the test. I would absolutely adore if Kubica were back in the car. And I think it would be a fantastic story for uh, for Formula One. In addition to everything else, it would be a real opportunity to get some great... PR going for Formula One, and I certainly support that. And the fact of the matter is, Kubica wouldn't be as fast as Hulkenberg for a while. That'd be my guess anyway. But I'm not sure that would be true forever. And honestly, if Renault's performance improves and Kubica still isn't um, able to quite match Hulkenberg, really more than anything, that just shows... Uh, better stead for Hulkenberg. And I think Hulkenberg would relish that challenge. Um, Palmer, it's, it's hard to say where he's at, but I, I have a feeling that uh, his days are numbered in formula one. I mean, it was weird, you know, Paul DeResta being in the formula one car for the Hungarian Grand Prix. I don't, I think Paul DeResta based on my memory of how he drove few years ago, Paul DeResta is more deserving of a ride than Palmer is. And so maybe, <laughs> maybe they should switch. Maybe, maybe uh, Palmer should head to DTM and 
Deresta, maybe he can find a seat in Formula One again. Who knows? Um, finally, uh, the last topic that uh, Chris Rose wanted to mention was the controversy over the halos, uh, the protection they want to give to the driver's head um, above the cockpit. Uh, Roche said, controversy over the halo. Hope they can improve the appearance for the 2018 cars, but I have no problem with the introduction if it helps improve safety further. Okay, this is really hard for me because Formula One cars are inherently dangerous and that's been the case for a long time. And safety improvements have been massive over time and that doesn't mean there isn't room for more help. I have a hard time with the halo because I think it's just atrocious looking and I'm not certain... That The Halo would have most likely helped when it came to Jules Bianchi, which is the most recent uh, Formula One death and an absolute tragic one. Jules passed away, you know, what it was it, 20, 21 years after uh, Senna, Ayrton Senna died. And it's hard to say, but that's a really long run between deaths and a very good thing. And we want to make the car safer. But uh, they're so ugly, and I feel pretty strongly that if we want to really protect the head, we should really protect the head. Think about Felipe Massa's accident. Think about um, what happened to Justin Wilson in IndyCar. I'm not sure a halo would do any good in those types of situations. Um, The spring... Uh, in Felipe Massa's situation could have just as easily um, had a trajectory that was underneath the halo and it would have hit just as hard. And it's possible it would have even been worse if the halo actually aimed uh, aimed that heavy object, the spring in Massa's case, in any particular way. And so I feel like if we're going to close the cockpit, we should properly close it with the canopy and just be done with it. That's my personal opinion because this is just a, such a bizarre stopgap, and I and I'm not seeing I'm not seeing the benefit of having this as opposed to a canopy. Is this is about keeping the car a quote unquote open cockpit car? I mean we're we're definitely picking at nits here and it's such a academic argument at this point (laughs) that if we want safety a canopy is a much safer way to go it'd be a much more beautiful way to go and there'd be more aerodynamic opportunities for the engineers with such things so my personal opinion is the halo is not a worthy middle ground and that we should just go ahead and go canopies if we do indeed want to uh, truly improve safety and protect the head much further. That's my own personal opinion. Anyway, uh, the next race is coming um, in Belgium. It is Spa. It is just an incredible place, an incredible race. I know for a fact that Kimi Raikkonen is very strong there. I will be rooting for him loudly and proudly. He is older than me, and he is not too old for the sport, and that will be true for several years to come. And interestingly enough, we're starting to get into that season where we might find out whether or not 
uh, Raikkonen will be in the car next year or beyond because, uh, you know, we're we're getting well into silly season. So that's just a little teaser for what may be coming. I do once again apologize for kind of the screwy nature of this particular podcast and also that uh, the way everything worked out, it ended up delaying this by about a week just because of my other schedule. So I do apologize for the delay. I do appreciate Wayne, I do appreciate your understanding. And until next time, I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. (laughs) 